0: This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: Stories this week include the first DOJ opinion release in six years, What is the Significance? Tom explains it all on the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog. An FCPA enforcement action involving international adoptions. Harry Casson in the FCPA blog reports. Bank-Government Partnership to Fight Financial Crimes, Dylan Tokar in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. If you're a cheater once, are you always a cheater? Aaron Nicodemus explores the Daimler fine in Compliance Week. Mike Volkoff takes a deep dive into the Business Roundtable's statement on the purpose of a corporation, and the board's response since then is failure to prevent the next big crime in the United Kingdom. When can you use your corruption, defense, and litigation? And does McDonald's suit against its former CEO implicate the company's D&O coverage? Kevin LaCroix explores. We take a look at some of the top podcasts this past week on the Compliance Podcast Network, Converge 20, and upcoming webinars. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Voice of Compliance Back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 219 for the week ending, August 21, 2020, the Failure to Prevent edition. As the Trump administration backtracks from its avowed goal to destroy the U.S. Postal Service, and we must note the U.S. Postal Service arrested Steve Bannon today. How much better does it get than that? Myself and Mr. Monitors are braving the surge in COVID cases in our respective states by staying safe. We're also back to look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our eye over the past week. Jay, how is sunny Southern California?
0: Uh, sunny Southern California is good. First week of school back for M&M virtually, and we're adopting to our schedule Tom, what is something that the DOJ has done for the first time in the last six years? Well
1: Jay, I thought I was trying to think of something pithy to say, like it's the most significant opinion release in six years. It's the longest opinion release in six years. Uh, but the reality is it's the first opinion release in six years. So that in and of itself is significant. But Jay, what I found about the significance of this opinion release, was really uh, an expansive reading of it because the facts were so straightforward and what the company was asking to do or the requestor uh, in FCPA opinion release parlance was asking to do is seemingly so black letter law acceptable that I think if you had asked someone a hundred times if they could do this under the FCPA, they would have said yes a hundred times. Uh, the basic facts were the requester wanted to buy some assets of a, uh, either a, a foreign government or a state-owned enterprise of a foreign government, and they bought those assets. Uh, they had another department of the foreign government help them in that sale, and that uh, other department wanted uh, a commission for work they had done. Uh, it was uh, commercially necessary, the work. The rate charge was commercially reasonable. The payment was to the foreign government department that assisted in the purchase, so it was not to an individual. And, of course, you can make a payment to a foreign government. All that seems extraordinarily straightforward and, and really not worthy of an opinion release. But there was one part of the opinion release that really caught my eye, Jay, and I just need to, to read it because it's so sort of off the wall. It says, uh Based upon representations of the requestor, there is no indication the requestor intends or believes the money will be diverted to any individual, nor is there any indication the money will, in fact, be diverted to any individual. The payment is transparency to uh, the foreign government and its management. Indeed, the chief compliance officer of this department of the foreign government has certified to the requester that the payment into the foreign government uh, department will only be used for the benefit of the foreign government office, and will not be forwarded to any other individual or entity. Um, That is not required by the FCPA. So many commentators could not understand why uh, that representation was made and why it was put into the opinion release. Well, I think the reason, Jay, is you have to look outside the FCPA. There's a massive criminal case in Italy that's ongoing involving E&I and Shell over an offshore block. They uh, got the rights to offshore Nigeria. And in that transaction, E&I and Shell paid $1.3 billion to uh, the Nigerian government with apparently the knowledge that that money would be paid out to individuals as bribes. Um, Now, that does not implicate the FCPA because the money was paid to the foreign government. So it may be that this requestor was concerned about the uh, Italian angle here. It may be that the Department of Justice is signaling that there's perhaps a a gap in the FCPA, which allows payment to a foreign government. But then if that foreign government wants to distribute the money out as bribes, that, that can be done even with the knowledge of the payor. Uh, it may be that the Department of Justice is trying to uh, communicate if they want Congress to fill this gap. Uh, it's completely unclear at this point, although Mike Volkoff has long said that the DOJ always telegraphs what they're going to do uh, in their public communications, whether that communication be an opinion release, a DPA, or, or something else. So uh, whether this means a change in the focus of the Department of Justice, it's hard to see how that could happen under this version of the FCPA. Does this mean that companies now need to worry about the payment to their customer, i.e. foreign governments? That's not something they've traditionally had to worry about. If it's a legitimate foreign government with a legitimate bank account and you make a legitimate pay- payment to them, that's sort of the end of the story. Um, so it's it's really interesting Um it, it's. I don't want to say it's nonsensical, but there seems to be no reason for this opinion release with the exception of uh, what I've talked about.
0: Well, it'll bear watching going forward. And uh, <clears throat> next up, we have an article from Harry Casson in the FCPA blog, uh, Three Charged with Adoption Scam Bribe Offenses. Three women were charged last Friday in a 13 count indictment for alleged roles in an adoption scam involving Ugandan and Polish children, with bribing Ugandan officials and defrauding adoptive parents. Uh, parents, rather, U.S. authorities and Polish regulatory authority. Two of the women were charged with FCPA offenses. First up, Deborah Paris of Lake Dallas, Texas, was charged with one count of conspiracy to violate the FCPA and commit fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit mail fraud and wire fraud. Finally, one count of mail fraud, one count of conspiracy to defraud the U.S. Second defendant, Dora Mirembe, 41, of Kampala, Uganda, was uh, charged with one count of conspiracy to violate FCPA and commit visa fraud, and one count of conspiracy to commit mail fraud. The last defendant, Margaret Cole, 73, of Strongsville, Ohio, was charged with a count of conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and one count of making false statements. The Department of Justice did not name the adoption agency Cole and Paris worked for, but local reports from Ohio said the FBI had been investigating an outclosed nonprofit agency called European Adoption Consultants, EAC, that was based near Cleveland. In 2017, the the FBI uh, raided the agency's offices. Cole was the executive director of EAC. With respect to the Ugandan scheme, the DOJ said that Paris Merembe and others engaged in a scheme to pay bribes to Ugandan officials, including judges and welfare officers, to secure adoption by families in the U.S. Some of the bribes were paid to welfare officers who recommended children be placed in orphanages. Bribes were also paid to Ugandan court registrars who would assign the hearings to corrupt, quote, adoption-friendly, unquote, judges. To fund and disguise the money, EAC began charging clients a, quote, foreign programs fee, unquote, that totaled more than $10,000 per client. According to the indictment, some clients of EAC believed the children were not knowingly given up for adoption by birth mothers and some of the children were returned to their families. In one instance in 2016, EAC sent a client a corruptly obtained welfare report that falsely stated the child's mother was helpless and could not provide for the basic needs and proceeded with the adoptions. After receiving this, the child from EAC, the client believed some of the information on the welfare was inaccurate. When Paris became aware of the visit, she called the client and told them that they should not investigate further. The client alerted a U.S. social worker and later traveled to Uganda to reunite the the child with their parents. The DOJ said between 2013 and 2016, EAC and Mirimbe procured more than 30 Ugandan children for U.S. parents. The indictment also included a scheme to defraud U.S. and make false statements to the adoption regulators in the U.S., with similar uh, aspects in the re- in regard to Poland, Polish children. The Aac determined that they could not care for one of two Polish children that they were set to adopt. Cole and Paris took the steps to transfer the child to the Par- Paris' relatives, who were not eligible for inter-country adoption. After the child was physically abused, Cole and Paris took steps to conceal the improper conduct. And in September of 2019, Robin Longoria, 58, of Mansfield, Texas, pleaded guilty in federal court in Ohio to one count of conspiracy to violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So uh, something that uh, has been brewing for the last couple of years and uh, has finally come to light. Tom, what does our good friend Dylan Toker have from us from the Risk and Compliance Journal at the Wall Street Journal?
1: Yeah, Jay, a really interesting article about uh, bank-government partnerships to fi- fight financial crime. This has been going on uh, under the radar for about the past five years, where governments and financial sector have been teaming up to create information-sharing partnerships that facilitate a two-way dialogue on suspected financial crimes. When the two parties can share information on specific cases or the types of potential activity they are seeing. Thinking goes, industry can be a more effective screen for suspicious activity. Um, Obviously, uh, screening is something that's very large on the bank's uh, radar because of the huge money laundering problems that uh, European banks have gotten into um, over the past several years. But now we've got uh, the banks actually working together with, uh, with governments. In some instances, literally uh, sitting side by side in dedicated offices to share information. There are different types of partnerships uh, that uh, some look at certain crimes, some look at certain uh, geographic regions, others look at specific transactions, bank accounts. Um, so there's lots of different ways this information can work. The UK was the first to set up an information sharing partnership when it created the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force in 2015. The initiative has closed at least 750 cases, securing more than 56 million pounds in assets and contributed 210 arrests. Its success has become a leading model for other countries. So uh, a very interesting uh, strategy as uh, companies Or as banks begin to warm towards this, Jay, the interesting thing for you and I is going to be what happens in the uh, private sector, what happens in the commercial uh, business world that you and I play in. So, uh, But good to see this partnership is working.
0: As most of our listeners will recall, there was a large matter with Volkswagen called Dieselgate, and we now have another German automobile company swept up. Daimler projects to spend over $2 billion to resolve U.S. emission cheating allegations. This comes to us from Aaron Nicodemus over at Compliance Week. Dahmer AG, the parent carmaker of Mercedes-Benz, predicts it will spend over $2 billion to settle emission tampering allegations by U.S. regulators. The proposed settlement announced by Daimler on August 13th will involve the company spending $1.5 1.5 billion with a B to resolve allegations by US regulators that it tampered with emissions of 250,000 diesel passenger cars and trucks sold in the US. In addition, the company expects to spend an additional 700 million to settle a US federal class action lawsuit. The company has cooperated fully with US regulators and continues to do so, the company statement says. With the proposed settlements, the company takes an important step towards legal certainty with respect to various diesel proceedings in the U.S. Daimler's action also came under the scrutiny of German regulators who fined the company $960 million in sanctions and disgorgement in 2019 for allegedly tampering with emissions of 684,000 European cars. Daimler's emissions violation follows Dieselgate, the much larger scandal perpetuated by VW. It is estimated that VW spent over $33 billion with a B so far to resolve Dieselgate, according to recent story in auto industry news site, Wards Auto. Volkswagen and Daimler are two of a long list of automakers embroiled in the emissions scandals. The proposed settlement for Daimler involves U.S. EPA California Air Resources Board, the Environment and Natural Resources Division of the Department of Justice, the California Attorney General's Office, and U.S. Customs and Border Protection. The settlements still have to be approved by regulators and the federal judge overseeing the class action lawsuit before the U.S. Court for the District of New Jersey.
1: So, Jay, Mike Volkoff uh, put together, I thought, just a great blog post series this week. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on it. He used the uh, anniversary or the upcoming anniversary of the Business Roundtable's restatement on the uh, purpose of a corporation, um, which was signed by 181 corporate leaders, uh, as an example to take a look back, see what problems still exist, and see where corporate boards and corporate governments governance might go Um It's all encapsulated and really is about his uh, first sentence of his second paragraph, which says, quote, but I'm sorry to say not much has really changed. So he goes through and in part one, he takes a look at accountability, talks about why the board needs to uh, prohibit a a CEO dual role as chairman and how a board needs to be accountable by uh, doing uh, oversight of a whole corporation, obviously, including single man, uh, senior management. In uh, part two, he looks at corporate board diversity. And if there's probably uh, not a more uh, misappropriated nomenclature than corporate board diversity, I can't think of what it is. Um, they are as lily white as they come and, in large part, male-dominated. Although people like uh, Amy Bernard Bond have uh, worked in, in your state of California to pass legislation requiring public companies to have uh, female board members. And at least there's that one step forward. But uh, boards typically um, look at uh, who they know uh, to be on their board. They want their friends. They want people they trust. And when you have that sort of self-fulfilling mechanism, it maintains the status quo. So diversity uh, really brings, obviously, different perspectives, different voices, different insights into corporate governance issues, and having a, uh, uh, for instance, having a compliance expert on the board is revolutionary to many corporate boards, yet uh, it's something that would seem to be uh, a minimum basic for any best practices compliance program. In part three, he looked at some of the challenges for board decision making. Obviously, boards tend to lack uh, both The knowledge to use technology and actual technology themselves. Boards need to focus on oversight and not management. Um, They need to consider the business disruption. And as we move from disaster recovery to business continuity to business as usual, how are boards going to fulfill that role going forward? I think it's going to be a critical element. And if there's, I guess, one theme in these first three parts and maybe even all four is Boards need to up their professionalism uh, significantly. And then finally, in uh, Thursday's blog post, he gives some prescriptions in which he entitles 10 essential steps to take now to advance corporate board governance, uh, train the board on oversight, expand voices from senior management into the board, increase diversity, add a professional skill set to the board, that's the compliance expert, recruit new board members from outside the usual suspect's increase focus and understanding on risk management and the strategic use of risk, improve information and data. Obviously, the Department of Justice agrees with that. Term limits on board memberships um, and an increase in the number of board committees. So, I would commend this blog post series to everyone uh, who's listening. We, of course, link to all four parts in the uh, show notes. So, check them out. Mike's got a great review of where we've been, where we were, where we're going, and really what needs to be done.
0: So next up, we ask the question, is failure to prevent the next big crime in the UK? This story comes to us from our colleagues at Cordery Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, and Andre Bywater. The notion of failing to prevent an illegal activity has gained traction in recent years in the United Kingdom, most prominently with the offense of the failure of a commercial organization to prevent bribery under the UK Bribery Act against which, quote, an adequate prevention procedures, unquote, compliance defense exists. There are also two offenses of failure to prevent the facilitation of tax evasion under UK Criminal Finances Act of 2017. So what are these two offenses? The two criminal offenses are as followed. The offense of failing to prevent the facilitation of UK tax tax evasion offense and the offense of failing to prevent the facilitation of a foreign tax evasion offense. Both offenses have a common core structure, but for foreign tax evasion facilitation offense, there are additional requirements of the so-called dual criminality. Both offenses are subject to a reasonable preventative measures defense and the organization has the possibility of being able to prove that it has maintained reasonable procedures intended to prevent the facilitation of underlying tax evasion offenses. Both offenses come in force on, came into force on September 30th of 2017. So who can commit the offenses? The UK tax evasion facilitation offense can be committed by any corporate or partnership organization Irrespective of globally where it's incorporated or based. And the two offenses can only be committed by a so called, quote, relevant body, unquote, which is either a corporate body or a partnership only. Individuals cannot commit these offenses. The UK tax evasion facilitation offense can be committed by any corporate or partnership organization, irrespective globally of where it's based. And finally, The foreign tax evasion facilitation offense can only be committed by an organization. So what are reasonable prevention procedures? If a corporate or partnership organization has maintained reasonable prevention procedures intended to prevent the facilitation of the underlying tax evasion offenses, it will have a defense to the two offenses. It's also a defense in relation to both offenses that when the offense was committed, it was not reasonable in all circumstances to expect an organization to have prevention procedures in place. Under the UK HM Revenue and Customs Guidance of 2017, entitled Tackling Tax Evasion Government Guidance for Corporate Offenses, to prevent criminal facilitation of tax evasion, here are six principles to keep in mind. You should perform a risk assessment proportionality of risk-based pr- prevention procedures. You should have a top-level commitment. You should perform due diligence, communication, including training, and monitoring and review. With all guidance, and it's only guidance, so following it is not a cast iron, ga- iron guarantee for immunity from prosecution. What are the penalties? Both of the above offenses are punishable by way of an unlimited find in England and Wales Convicted organizations may also be subjected to certain court orders. And can an organization self-report? Yes, if an organization suspects that one or two offenses may have taken place, it may wish to undertake an internal investigation and voluntary self-report. So what are the takeaways? Organizations may want to consider doing the following. First, have a compliance plan and scope out how to address the issues of failure to prevent the facilitation of tax evasions. Put in place reasonable prevention procedures, taking a tailored risk-based approach according to size, nature, and complexity of the business. Put in place policies and procedures, including those for whistleblowing. Get the board on board and train the staff. So this is uh, information that is useful to anybody doing business in the UK. And as usual, we link to it in our show notes. Next up, Tom. Tom. How? When can you use corruption? Uh, corruption defense in litigation.
1: So, Jay, we had a very interesting article from three lawyers at Vincent and Elkins, which appeared in the uh, State Bar of Texas International <laughs> Law Journal, and it dealt with exactly that: utilizing a corruption defense, but in arbitration cases uh, more than litigation. And arbitration, arbitral, arbitral, arbitral corruption defenses are still in largely unter- uncharted territory since there are very few awards dealing with them. Uh, As a result, how these defenses operate in tandem with parallel uh, domestic and foreign corruption investigations and uh, legal proceedings is still a developing area of the law yet. Um, While corruption issues are frequently raised in commercial arbitrations, they are largely obscured from the public domain. The authors have done a great job in uh, listing the three or rather several cases Uh, that are in the public domain. This is obviously a developing area of the law, and it's clear that international arbitration tribunals do consider um, parallel domestic corruption findings or the absence of those findings in adjudicating an arbitration decision. So um, they go through and explain what defenses are available, how to use it as an offensive weapon to try to get out of a contract, how to use it as a defense to try to deny a payment, um, it's a it's an interesting area. This is not something that's been written about uh, nearly enough. So I commend everyone, uh, particularly the lawyers listening uh, to us, to read this article because it may uh, give you some way to either bring an arbitration against a foreign government, a state-owned enterprise, if you feel like you were uh, uh, basically taken out of a contract for bribery, or perhaps even use it in an unfair uh, competition Lawsuit against a a competitor. If you're aware that there were uh, uh, bribes paid to get the contract, so uh, check it out.
0: Uh, So wrapping up our last article of the week: uh, Does McDonald's suit against its former CEO implicate directors and officers coverage? We got a return report uh, performance from Kevin Lacroix and his DNO diary. The news that McDonald's had filed a lawsuit against its former CEO, Stephen Easterbrook, to recoup severance compensation the company had paid the departed CEO, made the front page of the Wall Street Journal. The company contends that Easterbrook had only been terminated last November without cause, entitling him to a full severance package. But because he lied to investigators about the nature and extent of his relationship with company employees... The new lawsuit contends, based on evidence of three additional sexual relationships Easterbrook had with company employees that only came to light this summer, they feel that Easterbrook should have been terminated for cause. So here's the background. According to the complaint the company recently filed against Easterbrook, on October 16th of last year, the company was notified of an allegation that the former CEO had engaged in a relationship with a company employee. The board's independent directors convened and engaged an independent outside counsel to investigate. The employee told the investigator that her relationship with the CEO was entirely consensual, consisted of text messages and video calls, and never included a physical relationship. The independent directors met again on October 26, 2019, and they resolved to terminate Easterbrook for violating company policies. But in this July of 2020, the company received an anonymous report that Easterbrook had engaged in a sexual relationship with a different company employee. An internal investigation discovered photographic evidence that Easterbrook had engaged in physical relationships with not one, but two, not two, but at least three company employees in the year before its termination. The complaint alleges that the images show that Easterbrook repeatedly violated company policies against relationships with employees, and that he had lied to the company's investigator. So here's the lawsuit. It was filed in the Delaware Court of Chancery on on August 10th of this year against Easterbrook. The company alleges that it would not have entered into the separation agreement with him last fall if it had been aware of his relationships with the three employees. The complaint recites the separation agreement contains a provision allowing the company to claw back the severance compensation if the company discovers that Easterbrook committed an act that constitutes cause. Easterbrook's lawyers have responded in the press to the complaint, asserting that McDonald's is a sophisticated entity that engaged numerous internal and external experts to negotiate a separation agreement, and knowing that it could not prevail in a breach of contract claim against Easterbrook it has, quote, manufactured, unquote, a breach of fiduciary duty um, complaint. So here's the discussion. These events show how much pressure corporate boards are under in the post-MeToo area. Boards today aware of allegations that have been raised in the past that directors have been accused of turning a blind eye or sweeping allegations, on sweeping allegations of sexual har- harassment or sexual misconduct under the rug are now under pressure to act promptly. The lawsuit itself is extraordinary. It is highly unusual for a company to so publicly and dramatically sue its own former highest ranking officer, a fact that seems more extraordinary given the nature of the allegations. Indeed, in an August 10th, 2020 New York Times article, they quote, the lawsuit represents an extraordinary departure from the traditional disclose it and move on decorum that American corporate executives have embraced when confronted with allegations. Of course, it may also be relevant that last November, just after Easterbrook was terminated, a class action lawsuit was filed against the company alleging systemic sexual harassment. The company may also recognize that it would be under special scrutiny right now. Um, Kevin notes that he read the company's complaint against Easterbrook and the fact that the initial investigation included a search of Easterbrook's mobile phone but apparently did not include a review of his company email account made him scratch his head a little bit. Perhaps the oversight had something to do with the fact that the investigation wasn't conducted in just 10 days. From a DNO and o perspective, the lawsuit raises a number of potential coverage thought problems. For example, Kevin has no idea whether Easterbrook had any intent to seek protection under McDonald's D&O insurance for the claims asserted against him. But the fact is that the group of individuals insured under under a D&O insurance policy include former directors and officers. Insurers protect themselves from the problems this arrangement may, may otherwise correct Create by including standard insured versus an insured exclusion. In the current era, this standard provision has been revised in many public company policies to restrict the exclusion to precluding coverage only for claims brought by the insured corporate entity against an insured person. Regardless of the question whether or not Easterbrook has coverage for the lawsuit, the company's filed against him. There is a further question about possible future claims that might be brought against the board. While it may not be covered under the policy for claims the company has raised against Easterbrook, there still could be a covered claim under the policy if the current concern about the way the company's boards handled these circumstances ultimately do result in a lawsuit against the board. So, uh, big doings in Illinois. Uh, we go from our last story to take a look at some of the podcasts that we've that you've had on this week, Tom. First of all, um, why don't you tell us about this great series that you have with Lewis Sapperman over at Panasonic?
1: Sure. Uh, this month on The Compliance Life, I have Lewis Sapperman, as you noted, as a general, excuse me, the chief compliance officer, I think, chief ethics and compliance officer at Panasonic North American. In part one, we looked at his professional journey into compliance, and part two, Uh, We discussed the qualities he sees for a successful CCO, and today, or rather this week, uh, communication is driver of compliance. Uh, This week on uh, compliance and coronavirus, we had AMI week, another AMI week. On Tuesday, we had your colleague, Eric Feldman, discussing culture and compliance during COVID-19. AMI founder, Vin Diciani, on using compliance ambassadors during COVID-19. Check that out. It's uh, a really interesting insight from Vin. And then We concluded with Deb Waugh, and Deb is a healthcare professional, and uh, she was very passionate about the work that healthcare professionals are doing and how they're uh, holding up and what the challenges they face going forward. Over on uh, the Compliance Podcast Network's uh, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, uh, AMI uh, sponsored this month's uh, series on Boards of Directors, on Monday, we took a look at what leads to a successful board investigation. On Tuesday, board metrics for compliance. Uh, Thursday I had guest Vin Deciani to talk about board failures. On Thursday, I had boards and doing business in China. And on Friday, the board's role in hiring—not something that I think gets enough play. Uh, the month of August, as I said, is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. I've got our 31 days to a more effective compliance program has its own iTunes channel, so you can check it out there. Jay, we've got several uh, events coming up. Uh, You want to start off on those?
0: Yeah. uh, First of all, um, at this time of the year, we're usually getting ready to head into the fall conference season. And one of the first conferences to kick off, uh, Converge 20, has been reimagined as a virtual conference. And this is following up on their conference community that they've recently opened up online. So, uh, Tom, we have registration information here. And as you asked me last week, what is the cost to go to Converge 20? It's free. It's how much? Zero. Zero. So anyone should sign up and join us there. We're looking forward to uh, – I think, Tom, you're going to be doing some preview podcasts in advance of it. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, Next up, uh, what's happening on Walden Pond?
1: So for those who are not in the know, Vince Walden is the host of the Walden podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. Vince is a speaker at Converge 20, as am I. And we're going to preview a session uh, by yet another speaker, Matt Galvin, over at AB InBev, by talking about the ROI of compliance and how to frame that up in your corporate budgeting and how you can use that information to increase your budget. So that webinar goes off on Tuesday. Uh, 10 a.m. Central Time, and we've got uh, links to the registration information. That webinar is at no charge. On the same day, I'm doing a double header, Jay, as I'm joining your colleague Don Stern for a review of the 2020 updates to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs as a part of NAVEX Global's quarterly masterclass. Um, I'm sorry, it's not the same day. It's Thursday the 27th. Same week, same week, same week. So two webinars in one week. Uh, Hopefully I can uh, handle the pressure. But uh, I I had a great time preparing for it with Don. And for those who don't know Don, he's a former uh, U.S. attorney for the state of Massachusetts. Um, And uh, just a, a font of information federal prosecutors and sort of a prosecutorial and federal prosecutorial mindset. So I'm really interested, in, and I think he's got some great insights into the evaluation, particularly from his perspective as a, as a retired prosecutor uh, going forward. And, and Jay, if I could take a few minutes to, to really crow a little bit, because on Monday, August 31st, I'm going to have a 500th episode of the FCPA compliance report, Um Maybe even we can have a guest appearance by Eminem. Maybe it's worthy of that. I don't know. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, uh, it's, it's a really big deal to me. But what's an even bigger deal about it is next week, each day, I'm going to have a special episode leading up to the 500th episode. And the leading up episodes are going to be absolutely fabulous because I took five of the top commentators I know in compliance, uh, including yourself, to ask and basically ask every one of you all to take a look back at the last eight or ten years and what you've seen in the compliance profession. Jay, obviously, I think most people know you've been on the business development side at a couple of companies now in the compliance realm. And so your perspective obviously is different from Mike Volkoff, who's a lawyer and it talks about it from the legal perspective. It's different than uh, Jonathan Armstrong who talks to us about data privacy and data protection. And it's different from Matt Kelly, who's a business journalist, and from Jonathan Marks, who's internal auditor. So it's going to be a great week of podcasts. It's going to be great insight from five great uh, commentators. And then uh, Monday, the 31st, I hope all of our listeners will join in on that day for my 500th episode. I've got a special guest host uh, who will be hosting me and pitching me questions uh, hosting or roasting? Uh, hopefully uh, closer to hosting, but he uh, he's a new Yaka, so I may be roasted a little bit. So uh, that that's uh, something I'm looking forward to, and uh, I hope our listeners will enjoy the series. It's uh, it's going to have some uber cool uh, video, uh, social media sharing materials I've worked up with uh, the ladies over at Repurpose House and their team. So uh, it's a big deal for me, and I hope our listeners will uh, enjoy some of, or all of it.
0: This is with uh, Bernard Factor, and the webinar is entitled Examining the Nuances of Correspondent Banking to Address BSA AML Compliance Risk. As always, we'll have a registration link that you can get off in the show notes. So, on behalf of Tom Fox, not only the voice of compliance, but the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in episode, this week in FCPA episode 219 for the week ending August 21st, 2020. The failure to prevent addition. Uh, as always, we wish that you are safe and healthy. Some of you are going back to school, like my daughters, M and M, and we are starting here virtually in California, taking a very measured approach. Hope you and your children are safe. And we look forward to speaking to you next week when we will uh, tell you all about the happenings leading up to Tom Fox's 500th episode. So take care, and we'll talk to you soon.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jayrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me, Tom Fox at tfox at tfoxlaw.com we also got a new really cool app on the Compliance Podcast Network website where you can leave a voicemail or a message. If you'd like to ask us a question or have a topic you would like us to consider. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories for the week that is to become. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again.